that we've been doing in Proverbs on Sunday evenings is giving an opportunity for a question and response. And the way we've been working it is that if you have a question that occurs to you during the message, that you text this number that's up on the screen. And uh, I will hope to give enough thought to give a semi-coherent response. I've changed the name of it from question and answer to question and response to give myself a little bit more latitude there. But uh, actually, it's been really helpful to have your questions and to uh, have some chance to think together a bit more on questions that people are, are raising, which prompts more reflection from the front. So I hope that uh, we can do that tonight again. So there's the number. Uh, let's get our booklets ready. And if you want to turn to page 18, we're thinking about emotions. Emotions. How are you feeling tonight? Really, how are you feeling? I wonder if we're aware of our emotions. Some people are so aware of them that they're like a finely tuned thermometer or instrument. They can tell you their emotional temperature at any given moment. Others are so dimly aware that they may be feeling something, that they will only figure it out a few days later. And that's a spectrum. And we're all somewhere on that. Now, last Sunday, during our question and response time, we had a very thoughtful question about speech, speech about speaking, which was this. Thinking before we speak is great theoretically, but often something we think about only after we've spoken wrongly. And we all thought, yes, that's true. So the question was, how do we practically make sure that we think before we speak? And prompted by that question, I quoted a good friend of this church and a personal mentor of mine, Dr. David Field, who is a theologian turned therapist. He's a man of many talents. And David Field uh, says that the path to maturity, part of the, the path to Mature discipleship is to slow down, to become aware of our bodies, to be, become bodily aware, feelings focused in the sense of knowing what we feel, fully present, not distracted, and real or authentic. I'll say those five things again. Slow down, become aware of your body, what's going on downside, inside. Feelings focused, fully present and authentic. And I think the key to a lot of our sanctification, our growth as Christians, is to embrace that wisdom and put that into practice with the Proverbs in our daily lives. And I want to revisit that now in connection with this topic of emotions. And I want to caveat this by saying, I'm not becoming dodgy, liberal, or mystical. Okay? But we are going to have 60 seconds of silence, and it's not Remembrance Sunday. 60 seconds, one minute of silence, and during this time of silence, please would you just slow down and think about what's going on in your body and what you're feeling. Okay, we'll start that now.
Does a minute feel like a long time? I remember the first time I did that exercise, I realized that there was a tune playing in my head that had been playing for about three days and I'd never noticed. I was so unaware of what was going on inside me. So here's what happened to me just then. I realized I felt a slight fluttering here, uh, just slightly nervous. And then I felt the kind of pulse in the end of my fingertips. And then I realized my posture was tense. And of course it is because I'm preaching and I'm afraid. I want it to go well. I don't want to blow it. Some preachers feel they're only as good as their last sermon. That's not true, of course. But there's these things going on in us. And, ah, just to calm and be with you. And we in our evangelical, our Bible-believing churches, we have a right emphasis on the Word of God and of content, truth. But we overlook sometimes those parts of Scripture which talk about being still, in the presence of the Lord, be still and know that I am God. Those parts of Scripture which talk about sighs and groaning as part of expressing yourself before the Lord. So being still is a valid part of our walk with the Lord Jesus. Emotions. Howard Gardner is a, is a psychologist at Harvard University. He has broadened our understanding of intelligence by observing that there's not just one, but many, several forms of intelligence. He actually names eight areas. Let me just share a few of them. One is logical mathematical. Logic and maths. And people who are intelligent with this are good at quantifying things and making hypotheses, ideas, and then testing them and proving them or disproving them. It's logic. It's clear clarity. Then there are people with musical intelligence. This is very different, but it's no less intelligent. They can discern sounds. They can feel rhythm. The sound, the pitch, and the tone, and the rhythm, and the timbre of a sound. And that is essential to what we just engaged in here. These guys have got musical intelligence. Then there's bodily kinesthetic. People who are aware of their body and coordinate their mind with their body, sometimes to extraordinary degrees. And of course, this is what we see played out in a very, very fine sports person or athlete, is that high level of bodily kinesthetic intelligence. And then there's linguistic, the ability to find the right words to express what you think and mean. And those are just four of them, there are eight. And now you can already see, can't you, that not everybody is equally gifted with every type of intelligence. Someone can be very bright in one area and not at all in another area. I've always been quite good linguistically at finding words for things. I had my head in a book for most of my life until I was about 18. And yet bodily kinesthetic intelligence has always been a low area for me. I remember once playing football up on church fields. I say playing football, I was, I was standing on a pitch with a ball and um, with an old friend, Trevor Pierce, and during that kickabout, I was tackled by a dog. I never lived it down. <laughs> it's true, it knocked me, knocked me on the floor. Yeah, not very bo clever bodily. And, uh, and so you can be very bright in one area, not at all in another, and I hope that's encouraging if you've left the education system feeling that you're not very clever, because you have got God-given intelligence in some area that maybe hasn't been pointed out to you before. Now, one other type of intelligence is intrapersonal, intrapersonal. Somebody with high intrapersonal intelligence has the ability to understand themselves, 
to appreciate their own feelings and fears and motivations and what's going on inside. And people with this kind of intelligence are skilled at self-reflection. They know themselves very well. They're in touch with who they are, what they need, what they can accomplish. Their emotions are understood, but not all of us are very clear on that or very gifted on that. And our emotions are actually very important. Have you ever thought about how they influence your decisions and your thoughts? Many actions in this world Good things and bad things have been driven by unexamined passions. What about you? How are your emotions affecting you? What do you do with them? You see, we are emotional beings. God has made us like this. It's not something that's uh, to be regretted. The good creator gave us emotions for a purpose. We are not robots made out of meat. And so our emotions are tremendously important. They're God-given, but they're a good servant and a bad master. If you're ruled by your emotions, you can be driven into despair and misery, or at the other end of the spectrum, you could be so driven by excitement that you make an impulsive, crazy decision. Or some people just suppress their emotions, just stuff them. Don't know what to do with it, put it in a box. Stiff up a lip. Now, emotions are important. And if we're going to live well in God's world, we need to grow in our emotional wisdom. And that will mean not being ruled by them, not being obsessed with them, but putting them in the proper context of the grain of reality in God's universe. And this is where we turn again to the book of Proverbs. Our texts for tonight are all in that booklet. And you will know by now that Proverbs teaches us how to live well in God's world. It deals with the small change, the nitty-gritty of life, Those areas where we don't have a rule book, it's not black or white, there's so many shades of grey. 98% of decisions in life are made up of things that aren't clear. You don't have a rule book, but those things are crucial if we're going to live well, especially if we're going to grow in character and disposition and clear thinking and the fear of the Lord. How do we acquire this skill of living through wisdom? And we thought about the wisdom at work, wisdom in listening, wisdom in speech, and now Uh, This morning, friendship, and now emotional wisdom. And as before, we've turned, uh, chosen a bunch of top uh, problems, sorry, problems, proverbs, on the topic. And you know that every time we open a topic, it's like we're opening a door into a corridor that has a load of other doors. And we could keep exploring the house more, but we're only going to do one evening on emotions. And uh, I've got four, five headings, which are quite quick. Hold people Anxiety, anger, joy, and hope. Whole people, that's point one. Let's read these two proverbs at the top there, 14.30 and 17.22. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. A cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. What is this saying? We are whole people. Our emotional well-being is even connected to our physical health. It says here that the emotional state of envy, which is emotional, can rot your bones. A cheerful heart, on the other hand, is good medicine. A crushed spirit, which is a terrible thing, dries up the bones. It just reduces you. 
um, makes you wasted and thin inside. You see, you are a complicated person, a complex being made by the Creator with a mind, will, emotions, spirit, body, all connected together, all connected. And you know, we barely understand ourselves. And even in this 21st century, where we've made so many advances in, in science and technology and medicine, we still really, I, I think, barely understand human beings. So wisdom, here's the first observation, being wise, we will not reduce a problem to a simple explanation. You can't always give a simple explanation for something and, and think we've, we've, we've figured it out. It's complicated. People are complicated. We can't always uh, pronounce there's a simple or single cause for something, and that's what it's done, achieved by. There may be multiple reasons for something. And usually when we have challenges or issues, all of the different dimensions of us as people are involved. Someone may be suffering from a migraine, but the roots of that migraine are actually in stress brought on from financial pressure. And their feelings about financial pressure in turn are rooted in their early childhood and their experience of growing up and how their parents were with money. You see, that migraine, you could say just take a paracetamol, but the roots of it will be right back here, and there are lots of roots, just like a tree has many roots. Someone may be struggling with depression, but the cause of the depression has multiple roots. Now, the 16th and 17th century Puritans get a bad rap in today's culture, but some of them did the most sophisticated thinking about pastoral problems and analysis of them that has ever been done in the church. Thomas Brooks looked into discouragement, and Brooks described eight varieties of discouragement, and he applies this to people who suffer from burnout as well as anxiety, grief, and disappointment. So he calls discouragement, we might call it burnout or disappointment or grief or anxiety. And he, dis he distinguishes between discouragement that are caused by the following issues. Now, just, just notice this. Discouragement caused by covetousness, by an over-desire for something, by false expectations, hoping for the thing you can never achieve, by a man-pleasing spirit, too much desire for human approval, by self-righteousness, if you're self-righteous, it may lead you to be burned out by doctrinal distortion. So this is when somebody gets something from the Bible, but they distort it out of bounds, and that itself can lead to an emotional burnout. Or by a simple lack of self-discipline. Sometimes our indulgence of our passions and our pleasures can lead us to be discouraged. You, you notice how the, he gives these different causes for an emotional condition. Another great Puritan, Richard Baxter, studied depression. And he concluded that there were four main potential causes of depression. The first one was actually your body, your physiology, your hormones, your physical health, your life stage. Secondly, the, your temperament, your makeup, uh, how you're put together, your cultural factors, your family background. Thirdly, sin. Yes, the Puritans believe that sin leads to depression because Sin has this effect on us, it makes us guilty, uh, hangs over you like a cloud, drags you down, it's, it's never going to make you feel good. And fourthly, demonic activity. 
Remember, these are Bible-believing people. They did believe that there is an unseen conflict and the devil hates a happy Christian. He is the accuser of the saints. He's the father of lies. And he has, and the, the uh, enemy and his agents have the ability to speak in ways that we don't understand into a Christian's soul. So if you're depressed, there may be multiple causes that lie in your body, your temperament, sin, demonic activity. And and you can't just pin it on one or the other. And we need to be very careful because these things are often intertwined. Uh, And I think we also need to be very careful of the kind of... the kind of theology that says Christians should always be happy and should always be victorious and should never be down because after all, joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And of course it is, but we live in a fallen world and we're broken people being put back together. So uh, I would say to a Christian who's depressed, go and see your GP. And part of the help will probably be some medicine. And because we're bodily creatures, that will be, could be, well be some wise advice. And part of the help will be some talk, some therapy. Part of it will be some good friends. And there will be a whole load of things as well as our spiritual lives involved. Now depression is so common now in the Western world. One psychologist, Martin Seligman, called it the common cold of mental illness. Others have estimated at least 10% of all adults will become seriously depressed at some time in their lives. So that's all of us. Either ourselves or people we know. It's part of reality. But the scriptures urge us not just to let it lie there, not just to accept it. So if you're experiencing dry bones, then you're not alone. And if you feel trapped in despair or a dark cave, then Jesus has given the church for you. We don't have a magic bullet to take away all your ills, but we can pray with you, walk alongside you, give counsel, and friendship, because many of us know the heaviness of a crushed spirit. Chapter 18, verse 14, that third proverb says, the human spirit can endure in sickness, but a crushed spirit, who can bear? You might be as sick as anything, but if if your spirits are okay, you probably pull through, but to have a crushed spirit is a terrible thing. Paul at one point says, we despaired of life itself and so cast down so we're whole people therefore our emotions as part of the package are important and we should seek emotional wisdom to be wise from the bible for ourselves and for one another now i'm going to spend the rest of my time with just looking at four emotions i think these are four of the big ones and two of them are negative and two of them are positive and they are anger and anxiety and joy and hope Anxiety. I've been in pastoral leadership, one sort or another, in, in churches for 25 years. And I have to say that if depression is the common cold of mental illness, then anxiety is a pandemic. It's sweeping through our lives. And many of us are affected by it. And I hope you're honest enough to say that. And we don't really, I think, fully understand anxiety. Look at this proverb. Uh, Chapter 12, verse 25. Anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. It weighs down the heart. 
Bruce Waltke is a leading Old Testament scholar and expert on Proverbs. He says that this word translated anxiety, which is in the Hebrew language, anxiety, refers to this. Just, just um, tune in on this. The emotional distress caused when something vital to your life is threatened. Say it again. The emotional distress caused when something vital to your life is threatened. And that's what makes us feel anxious. So when we deal with anxiety, we want to slow down, be bodily aware, feelings focused, fully present, real, and think, what's going on? And expressing it helps, you know. Talking to somebody else about it, a trusted person. And maybe, for some of us, writing. Just writing it down, all your feelings. We had a friend, good friend up north, who, uh, when she was struggling with depression or anxiety, would write furiously everything she thought and then throw the paper away because it had done its job. Here is a five, suggested five-stage process when we're anxious. Firstly, admit, I'm distressed. Describe the feelings. Secondly, ask, what is the thing in my life that's being threatened by, that's causing this? Thirdly, what is my heart attitude towards that thing? Fourthly, what truths from the gospel do I need to apply? Fifthly, pray with someone. Actually, I'm going to do this right now. So I confessed to you earlier on that during that minute of silence, I became aware that my body was anxious. There's this here and the fingertips and the shoulders like that. And what? So that's the feelings. I wasn't really distressed, but certainly had anxious feelings. What's the thing in my life being threatened? Ooh, I'm a preacher. I'm about to preach. What's being threatened? Reputation, acceptance, people's approval. You can see that, can't you? What's my heart attitude towards those things? They're too important to me. What truth in the gospel do I need to apply? I am fully accepted and welcomed by the King of Kings. In the eyes of the most important person in the universe, I'm loved and accepted, and I cannot be more loved and accepted by him. He's asked me to be a preacher. I'll do it to his glory and leave the consequences to him. Amen? Now, that's just on the spot trying to think it through but I want to also say we're never going to get rid of anxiety completely this side of heaven and in some contexts being anxious is a proper response you remember the apostle Paul 2 Corinthians 11 I face the daily pressure of my anxiety for all the churches and he's not saying that's a bad thing to be anxious for God's people so not necessarily bad but it can be crippling or anxiety can grow out of unbelief And the important lesson that we learn from this proverb is that a kind word cheers it up. That means we shouldn't deal with anxiety on our own. We need a kind word from someone else that cheers the heart. A good word, referring to what's beneficial for life, creates life, protects life. Such a word can be full of insight and encouragement. The anxious person needs to regain a proper perspective on life to renew his or her confidence in God and to know that they're not alone. So first question for tonight, what helps you most when you're anxious? Second negative emotion I want to look at is anger. 
uh, anger, let's look at some of these proverbs. An angry person stirs up conflict and a hot-tempered person commits many sins. Anger might look like the opposite of anxiety. If you think about an angry person and an anxious person, they might look very different, but often they're closely related. Sometimes a person who is raging about something is actually driven by anxiety underneath. I uh, had a professor at my theological college who taught pastoral counselling. He'd been teaching pastoral counselling for something like 40 years. And he related a story to us about a businessman who he was counselling for anger management. And one day the man arrived at the session in remarkably good spirits. He was really happy. And the professor thought, great, we're finally making some progress. And he said, how are you doing today? And the man said, oh, I'm fine. As I was driving here, someone cut me up on the road and I was so angry that I drove my car into them. I feel fantastic. <laughs> and the professor was like, oh no, what have we done? Now, you might not be quite there yet. You may be the kind of person who is cool, calm, collected, and passive-aggressive. On the surface, you know, you look in control, but underneath there's a cauldron of rage. We all struggle with anger in one form or another, and anger is a growing problem in our culture. So it's right that we should spend some time looking into it. That first proverb points out that anger is dangerous. Uh, an angry person stirs up conflict and a hot-tempered person commits many sins. A great Nigerian brother at my previous church preached that how you spell anger is only one letter away from danger. An angry person stirs up conflict. How many broken relationships, bitter feuds, acts of violence come from the fact that someone just basically failed to control their temper? If they just slept on it. No other emotion has led to so many dead bodies. And it says more broadly at the end of the verse, it leads to many sins. Many sins come from anger. Again, the power of anger is that it creates immense energy. Have you ever noticed that? You're feeling tired, you have a row with somebody and suddenly you're full of energy and you do all the dishes really fast. At least that's me. That energy can be used for good in righteous anger, but more often it's misdirected into sin and it has terrible consequences. The next proverb, 1919, says this, a hot-tempered person must pay the penalty. Rescue them and you will have to do it again. It's pretty sobering. Anger tends to carry its own consequences. A hot-tempered person usually finds that there are natural consequences to their hot temper. Because they blew up at somebody, that person's now less likely to trust them. It's very hard to regain it. They don't feel safe around them. How can I trust the judgment of a person who just loses their cool? Sinful anger also dents relationships. Other people become wary of you. They don't know if or when you're going to blow up again if you're safe to be around. And actually, such people tend to be their own worst enemy. If you rescue them, you have to do it again. In other words, the tendency is to keep on doing it, getting into more trouble, so other people start to stay away from them. And the advice of Proverbs is to find ways to manage our anger so that it does not get out of control. Chapter 29, verse 11, the next one. Fools give full vent to their rage, but the wise bring calm. 
Now, the Bible doesn't teach that we ought to be seeking a sort of zen-like calm where we're just dispassionate and detached from the world and its problems. And the Bible actually teaches that there is righteous anger and there's a good use of anger. God himself gets angry, but he never sins. Chapter 22, verse 14. The mouth of an adulterous woman is a deep pit. A man who is under the Lord's wrath falls into it. So being under the Lord's wrath is a right thing. There are things in this world that we should be angry about. Righteous anger is a gift. If you are not angry about human trafficking, there's something wrong. Righteous anger is a gift that gives power to address wrongs, and often it's the power that starts charities and other good causes. But we are often angry about the wrong things, and in our anger, we sin. So reflection question. In what ways has anger brought bad consequences into your life? How can you address that? We hold people, we experience anxiety, we experience anger. The next two emotions are vital if we're going to live well, because these are part of the soul's medicine for anxiety and anger, and we need to seek them, joy and hope. Joy, let's look there on page 19. Light in a messenger's eye brings joy to the heart, and good news gives health to the bones. Speaks of a messenger who comes to find you with a message, and as you see the messenger approach, you can see that his or her eyes are shining because they've got good news to bring. There's nothing like bringing good news. We speak of eyes twinkling, don't we? Eyes brightening, eyes shining. The friend in this proverb has a radiant face. They are bringing encouraging news, and therefore, we see again how important relationships are to have a life of joy. You need someone to come to you bringing good news. And that reminds us that we need community. Steve uh, said it again this morning. We grow best in community. And in order to have real community, we will need to be present for one another and make some sacrifices. Some years ago, Melissa and I uh, faced some big financial challenges. It was uh, in our ministry in Manchester. It's probably over 10 years ago now. And I think I may have told the story before, so I won't um, labor it except to say that we, were in, we thought we were in very deep water and might have to leave uh, the church and uh, leave ministry and that we thought we were in tens of thousands of pounds of debt. And my father had a friend, Shamim Hossein, who gave us some advice. He was a finance guy. He's a finance director. He gave me some advice which was good. And then after the advice, he sent me a simple text. And the text said this, Mike, remember the love of God. That's all he said. And that text changed everything. Shamim just took some part of the good news and he applied it to my heart at just the right moment. Remember the love of God. He gave me practical advice as well, you understand. It's not one or the other. And that gave, as it says here, health to the bones. I mean, you could even feel it. Health to the bones, good news. Here's the other side of the coin. Uh, do we speak words to others that bring them joy? 
Look at this next, Proverb 15:23. A person finds joy in giving an apt reply. How good is a timely word? So actually, uh, if, if we are listening to others and attentive to them and sensing where they are and, and their need and just knowing, asking the Holy Spirit to give us the wisdom for them and just to give an apt reply is a real joy to you. It's good for you and good for them to hear that timely word, words that help the other person and bring joy to us. Fifthly, finally, hope. Hope uh, is so important at the core of our being as people. We are not just a swirling mass of emotions. We're actually a collection of hopes. The Bible portrays us as hope-based creatures. And Proverbs sees this. Look at chapter 13, verse 12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. The prospect of the righteous is joy. That's what they're hoping for. But the hopes of the wicked come to nothing. So if we're going to live well, we need to know what our greatest hopes are and see how they influence and even control us. Because, and this is very important, hope that is deferred makes the heart sick. If you hope for something and it never, ever, ever comes, eventually your heart gets sick. But the longing fulfilled is like a tree of life for you. Have you ever looked in your heart and prayed, Lord, show me what I'm actually hoping in? It's a necessary prayer because we might have set ourselves up for constant heart sickness if we're not hoping in the right things. Longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Now that is an extraordinary image. And if you know your Bible, it gets even more amazing because the tree of life only appears in three parts, three places in the Bible. The first one is at the very beginning, the book of Genesis, the creation narrative. In Genesis, the tree of life is at the very center of the Garden of Eden and it gives life to those who eat from it. And the way to it is guarded after the fall of our first parents. So we're blocked from the tree of life. We can't get back to life. Death has entered our experience. Death in every sense. Not just popping your clogs, but every other kind of death that we feel. And then the tree of life makes its final appearance at the very end of the Bible. In Revelation 22, the new Jerusalem, the city of God which has descended, uniting heaven and earth. Here we find the tree of life again. The angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city and on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So the future hope for us is that the way to the tree of life, life in all its fullness which was closed off by human rebellion and sin, will be open once again in the final day when Jesus returns to marry his bride. When the groom comes back for the church and heaven comes to earth and he declares, behold, I am making all things new. The old way is passed away. I'm making all things new. And there in that city is the water of life and the tree of life and its leaves are for the healing of the nations and no longer will there be any curse. See here, 
right in the middle of the Bible, in Proverbs, we find the tree of life again. And it is what happens to the heart when its longings are fulfilled. A longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Hope, that most powerful of emotions, will serve us best when it is pointed in the right direction and located in the best place, Jesus Christ and his kingdom, which will come and fill this universe with the world of joy. And if our hope is anchored there, then our lives begin to take on their proper perspective. And that will help us with all these other things, our anxiousness, our anger, and everything else, because we have hope in the right place. The prospect of the righteous is joy, but the hopes of the wicked come to nothing. Well, let's pray for a moment, and then we're going to sing again and have some uh, question and response. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your word is so rich and um, clear and powerful and it's a living and active word. It's like a two-edged sword. It cuts uh, right in to divide even the uh, soul and the spirit and discern what's going on inside us. And so we ask, make us wise people who understand ourselves as well as the times we live in and walk with you day by day towards the tree of life. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing. Thanks.